Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg cott i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i are joined by the founders of the numero group a label that celebrates some of the great overlooked artists of the last 50 years. And later on, we'll review the new albums from British pop star Lily Allen and the New Jersey indie rockers Titus Andronicus. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate. Yes, indeed, Greg, and if you recall, we were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. <laughs> oh, sorry, just had to do it. Hunter Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. We have nothing but appreciation and love for Las Vegas because KNPR, Nevada Public Radio, has added sound opinions. And, you know, rather than, than go with the killers, which are making a lot of noise out of Vegas right now, or panic at the disco, we wanted to go back to a more psychedelic era. Because, <laughs> I, you know, Vegas is literally the trippiest place I've ever been. It is. Whether you're talking, you know, nature when you go out to the desert in the beautiful countryside or the strip, right? So uh, the great onslaught of techno in the mid-'90s, when, when the uh, techno onslaught was going to replace grunge and everybody was going to be going to raves and all the major labels started signing up electronic dance artists. One of my favorites was The Crystal Method, which was a duo. Uh, Ken Jordan and Scott Kirkland, both from Vegas, actually put the band together, though, out in uh, Los Angeles in 93. They're gearing up to put out a new album, their fourth, in April, but we wanted to go back to one of their classics, Trip Like I Do, which <laughs> you know, says a lot about what you need to say about yeah. Las Vegas. Here they are on Sound Opinions.
That's Trip Like I Do by Crystal Method, both Las Vegas natives. Welcome on board KNPR, Nevada Public Radio. For when my hand was holding hers, she whispered words that I awoke. And faintly bouncing round the room, the echo of whomever spoke. That is Fish, the quartet from Vermont that is making a big comeback in 2009 and one of the big headliners at the summer festivals. Yes, the summer festivals, Jim, are already announcing their lineups. You know, one of the areas of the music industry, at least the mainstream music industry, that is relatively healthy in the last few years has been the concert industry. And the summer festival circuit is traditionally where the concert industry makes the largest quantity of its money during the entire year. So we're seeing these uh, festival lineups starting to fill out. Uh, Fish is going to be one of the big headliners at one of the biggest festivals of the summer, the Bonnaroo Festival in Tennessee, June 11th through 14th. They're going to be joined by Springsteen and the E Street Band making their only festival appearance. The Beastie Boys, Nine Inch Nails, David Byrne, Wilco, Al Green, Snoop Dogg, uh, and Elvis Costello. <laughs> what what do these things have to do with each other? Uh, they don't have anything to do with each other. What they do is they put a bunch of bands and artists in a field. Lots of people come. Lots of money is made. The formulas work really well for Bonnaroo. It is one of the most established names in the festival circuit, and they have put together some of the biggest names in the summer concert season. But, you know, it's kind of like eating filet mignon with, like, <laughs> ice cream on top and chili sauce on the side. Yeah, exactly. And we've had this complaint in the past about the identity of these festivals. What do they really stand for anymore? Bonnaroo was associated with the jam band scene when it first started out of the southeast about a decade ago, but now it's clearly a much more eclectic bill. Ditto for the Coachella Festival out in California. Originally kind of the go-to site for alternative rock bands, but its big headliner this year is Paul McCartney. Mm. Not a super alternative rock artist there, certainly more of a traditional classic rock artist. Well, he is doing it in his guise as the fireman, which is his techno kind of underground. Although the album we reviewed not long ago is more of a conventional song album, it still is McCartney trying to do like an indie rock thing. Yeah, his edgy side is coming out, right? So McCartney's headlining Coachella along with The Killers, The Cure, My Bloody Valentine's going to be there, a rare appearance from Leonard Cohen, and Amy Winehouse apparently is coming out of hiding to do Coachella Don't forget Morrissey. Don't forget Morrissey. But look at those names. Morrissey, Cure, McCartney, Leonard Cohen. These are not cutting-edge artists. These are well-established artists. Mm -hmm. We're talking about big money, and we're talking about bigger names. Glastonbury, the mother of all these festivals in a lot of ways, has been operating out of Scotland for the last couple of decades, sold out completely before even announcing its lineup, 137,000 tickets sold before a lineup has even been announced. So there is a certain degree of health in the festival business that isn't going on anywhere else in the record business. But one sign of decline. If you don't have the goods, if you don't have the lineup, the people won't come. And that was the case in the Langarado Festival operating out of Miami. That festival had been going strong for the last six years, but they pulled a plug on this year's festival with a lineup that included Modest Mouse, Ryan Adams, Death Cab for Cutie, because tickets weren't moving fast enough. So the first sign that there may be a chink in the armor. If you don't get those really big names, you might not get the people to pay the tickets for your well, festival. Well, and just that the, the country can only sustain so many of these mega festivals drawing people from all corners of the world. You and I were talking last year a lot about the possibility of festival glut. Either way, we predict major changes in the concert industry to come. There's a lot of talk this week of a big story that may or may not break by next week of Live Nation and Ticketmaster merging. The two dominant 
companies in the ticket business, which overnight would remake the concert industry. It's a story we're going to stay on top of. All right, you soul people, I want you to listen to me. Now, when you see some of the brothers doing good, what do you say? Suck it to them, soul brother. You are listening to Sound Opinions. Greg, you know, people are always telling us how much we know about music. But to tell the truth, we are punters compared to some of the obsessive collectors who spend their lives seeking out the most obscure music possible in basements and at garage sales and at uh, dusty old record stores all across the U.S. Yeah, there was a lot of great soul music made in uh, cities outside of the soul capitals, Detroit, Chicago, and Memphis in the 60s through the early 80s. Uh, obscure musicians, fly-by-night labels, uh, making these beautiful-sounding pieces of music that really didn't get much recognition nationwide, and were only discovered by DJs looking for obscure beats to sample in the 90s. And this created a whole new market for this cool music. Uh, People wondering, where did this come from? Yeah, and you see it selling for hundreds and hundreds of dollars of 45 on eBay. Yeah. Uh, This is where our guests today come in, a trio of record collectors out of Chicago who found music in nooks and crannies literally all over the world, then decided to hunt down the artists for permission to re-release this music on these really cool compilations under their new independent record label, The Numero Group. We are here with Rob Severe and Ken Shipley, co-founders of the Numero Group. Welcome to Sound Opinions, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you here. You are two of the three principals in the Numero Group, founded in 2003. Founding a record label, first of all, in 2003, when everybody said, back then even, that the record industry is not long for this world, that it's going down the tubes, and here you are, a little more than five years later, living quite quite large <laughs> with a series of archival releases. What were you thinking back in 2003? What was the mission that you had in mind when you formed the label? Well, the mission was to make reissues good. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I had been working at Disc and trying to do some very similar things over there, and they just weren't very receptive to it. And it seemed like the business was getting away from specialized while the consumer was getting more specialized. The music business is just on its last legs because it's been ignoring its customer base for the last two decades. And I think that what was happening in the music business back then and is still happening now is that people just cast the widest possible net and try to grab everything in there. And Numero just, you know, it was like, well, there's people out there and maybe there's 25,000 of them out there. And how do we get these people to become part of our tribe? So, Part of Numero's business plan from the get-go was to make things that didn't necessarily appeal to everybody and try to focus on the people that, that were out there that wanted this kind of music or this kind of experience with buying records. And we're talking about people who uh, religiously search the back pages of Mojo magazine looking for the lost classics and uh, will search for days, weeks, months uh, looking for that one obscure Soul 45. Uh, was that sort of the vibe, the, the kind of fan, the kind of buyer you envisioned? for the stuff you were putting out? Our audience that we intended, I think, was more just an educated person that wanted good music but wasn't going to scour the back pages of Mojo or, worse, the basements of the south side of Chicago. Because that's an extremely specialized field of people that are, like, less than a couple thousand, Mm -hmm. um, if that. And so, you know, you can't really make a living or a record label just on focusing on such a, a small contingent of people. 
I mean, a lot of what we wanted to do is like what Rob said, is, is just make great records for people who didn't know how to find this kind of great music. I mean, it, you can't walk into a store and pick up a Capsule 45. It doesn't exist. Um, and conversely, you know, nobody was really telling people about these little worlds that existed. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about what Capsule uh, was in a minute. You guys still thought, though, I think that was the heart of Greg's question, that the label was the best way to do this. I mean, you could have started an online blog, you know, and great soul singles and, and stuff that you discovered. You could have posted on the web. <laughs> you know, why did you think it was still a good idea to, to sell it to people as recorded music? I don't know that we thought it was a good idea. Oh. I mean, we, <laughs> I don't think... Business-wise, anyway. I right? think we thought that it was a fool's errand that we were going to embark on anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, that... But it do it well. Yeah, but exactly. <laughs> it was, it was um, taking a shot. Mm-hmm. We approached the label almost more like a band. A band just doesn't decide to put you know MP3s up on a blog, or some do. But like a real band goes out and makes a record, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know. And you want to make an album, and you want to make something that'll last and take that test of time that that people want. Well, let's let's talk about Capsule, uh, short for uh, Capital City Soul, Columbus, Ohio, forgotten to the annals of history record label. And this was the first Numero Group release, right? Correct. correct. All right, Rob, where did the Capsule uh, thing start for you? Where Capsule started was uh, Dante Carfagna, who's from Columbus, played for me a record by Johnson, Hawkins, Tatum, and Durer called You Can't Blame Me. So that's what's that's what started down the road. Uh, I was able to pre- procure a copy myself, and we we intended to include it on a compilation that we were working on called Eccentric Soul. Well, it was actually a compilation that Rob was working on in his head. It, this this <laughs> genre that that he sort of invented. And you know, when I met Rob, he he kept he'd come over and he'd play these records for me, Eccentric Soul, and it was yeah. a genre that I'd never even heard it before, but it sounded really cool. <laughs> and so when we were talking about starting this label. That was the first thing. I was like, well, let's do a compilation of 45s. But then as you start kind of getting further into this, you realize a compilation of 45s is, uh, that are unconnected is not a very good story and mm-hmm. ultimately is is just not that interesting. And so we wanted to make something that would be just a little better and tell, you know, tell that story. So literally the first guy I ever called about tracking a record – I called Bill Moss because I looked him up and I was like, oh, this guy exists. I'll just call him and see if I can license this track. And lo and behold, he was a really nice guy. And he was like, well, you know, I didn't just do one record. I did like 12. Ken, he was a singer and a DJ in, in Columbus, Ohio, right? And he'd run this little label for a little while. That's like the, five that's the years. Guy. Yeah. yeah. And they never had any success outside of uh, the region, I take it, right? It's not entirely true. Well, I mean, real Defined success. success. Yeah. I mean, the, the, <laughs> his his records, um, "Socket to Him, Soul Brother," was issued on Bell and did okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was a hometown hero in, in Columbus. But outside the region, I mean, like maybe places like Baltimore and DC were playing the records. Cleveland, Cincinnati, 
you know, you couldn't get this stuff played in Chicago. And yeah. he didn't have, you know, what he always said is he never had the money to get it played because <laughs> I remember every time we talked to him, he's like, if I would have just put $100 into Herb Kent's hand, you know, everything could have changed. <laughs> a little payola. Well, that must be exciting for these guys who uh, are relatively obscure in, on a national level, certainly, uh, to find that somebody was actually even interested in their music anymore and then to have it so lovingly released out there. It's probably got to be a kind of a cool feeling, I would imagine. Well, Rob, wouldn't you say it kind of cuts both ways? It cuts both ways. Even with Bill Moss, I mean, one of the things that we encountered with him was that he was hurt by the failure, you mm-hmm. know, really hurt. When your name is on something, when your voice is in something, when you've written songs for something, that's that's completely different than writing a check for, you know, ten grand or something to some business that doesn't quite... Mm-hmm. go anywhere. No, this label was his heart and soul. This label was, his, as he calls it, his first love. I mean, we had to build some real trust with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took two trips to Columbus to really get him on board. It was exciting for him because, you know, he was number one and mm-hmm. he was kind of like a test case. But at the same time, having lived through trying to break something, it really mm-hmm. resonated with him. We're going to play some music for you, in particular from this first eccentric soul release, documenting the capsule label out of Columbus, Ohio. Focus on a Marion Black with a song, Who Knows. Rob, what's the story behind this song? When Bill Moss decided he was going to start a record label, he was was still a DJ, a very popular DJ in Columbus. And so he held a talent show under the auspices of it being a radio station talent show. But word got around that he was starting a a label. Now, he dabbled in releases before, and this was even after he had his single release, uh, Sakatum Soul Brother. The word was out that whoever demonstrated some real abilities at this talent show would be signed to his new label. Hmm. And so that was where he met Marion Black, who was a waiter. He was a career waiter who still works as a waiter today. Now, Who Knows was a song he wrote and performed at that show. Additionally, I, something that should be noted about him is that this record, you know, it was almost kind of a hit around town. I mean, I think it... it go it, on Fool. Go on Fool. Ironically, the, 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 flip, the, the other side was the hit. And not go on fool. Yeah, not who knows. But in hindsight, who knows has actually become an extremely, you know, well-respected track. I mean, Mm. it's been sampled. It's been in TV. It's been in movies. It's been in a lot of places. And it generates a lot of income for Marion and the Moss family. So it's kind of really nice to be part of something and and watch somebody be like, you know, this person never got anything for years. Like, who knows? Who knows wasn't even the track that people wanted to play. But now, all this time later, it's the track that everybody wants. It's our most downloaded track on iTunes, Hmm. you know, any given month. Let's give that a spin. So it's Marion Black, who knows, from the uh, first Numero Group release, Eccentric Soul, the Capsule label on Sound Opinions. Who knows what tomorrow will bring Maybe sunshine and maybe rain But as for me, I'll wait and see And maybe it'll bring my love to me Who knows, who knows, who knows Any better than I That is she who's keeping me alive Keeping the little girl That's Marion Black singing Who Knows from the compilation Eccentric Soul, the Capsule label, which highlights forgotten R&B from that defunct Columbus, Ohio record label. We'll be right back with Rob Severe and Ken Shipley of the Numero Group to unearth some more eccentric soul from other parts of the country and around the world on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Another day, another day, just another day. 
There are three sides to a triangle Two people in love One heart that stands alone Oh, tell me, which one am I? Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're here with Rob Severe and Ken Shipley of the Numero Group. These guys have been sharing some of their eccentric soul discoveries from overlooked areas of the country and, and the whole world, really. Uh, the label's first album compilation showcased soul music from the lost Columbus, Ohio record label Capsule. Now, you guys moved on in the Eccentric Soul series later on and, and focused on a great Chicago label, Twinight. Um, Chicago not lacking for soul labels in the, uh, in the 60s and 70s in particular. In fact, the sound of Chicago soul was uh, all over the commercial radio airwaves. And Twinight had kind of its own house superstar, uh, Syl Johnson, but you guys dug a little deeper. Right, Rob? Yes. To make it part of the Eccentric Soul compilation, we kind of had to take a different approach on Twinet because it was the first time we were dealing with anything that had anything remotely close to a hit. So we were looking at, we had to look at it through a different lens. What was interesting about the label that we discovered is that there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes to make this a very curious uh, imprint. So You've got a couple different types of things happening. For the most part, what was happening is you've got two very connected guys running the show, Peter Wright and Howard Bedno. These guys were legends of marketing, essentially. And Chicago they, radio. In, in Chicago radio. I mean, they were essentially they were doing radio promotions, you mm-hmm. know, and they're, they're local legends. Then you had behind the scenes, you had E. Rodney Jones, who's kind of working to make push stuff in their direction. And so those two factors kind of come in in a really interesting way because – You've got guys who are like you, e. Rodney Jones, who are like, I just discovered a band, and instead of you paying me $300 to play the Atlantic or Motown record, why don't you put out this record on this band I just discovered, and we'll call it even. Yeah. And it, it was They developed a term for it, which is friendola. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really what they called it. I mean, right. we're, we're not making that up. Right, that, sure. is, yeah, that yeah. was their term for it. And so you've got what was going on in the label was actually very eccentric, which is that there's a couple examples of people just showing up with demos and them saying, okay, we'll buy this from you right now. We'll mm-hmm. just buy it and then we'll just put it out. And that stuff was put out in, you know, uh, maybe 80 to 100 copies just to see what would happen. And they, they just sent it to their radio friends. All these guys were very in tune with what was happening on the radio. And so nothing was happening. They let it go. They never mm-hmm. even pressed it for real. So it would just, it would simply come out as a white label. So stuff like that was happening. Then you've got situations where they're merely doing favors for people. They're putting out a record. Oh, this DJ, all, all the DJs were managing local acts. They're all connected or they had cousins or they had friends. <laughs> so, oh, you know, this guy needs a favor. We'll put his record out. They understood that, you know, the value of pressing the record when you're doing it as a favor can be much greater than the price of that vinyl. Mm-hmm. Especially when you have a logo on there that's, that has hit records underneath it. I mean, Syl right. Johnson was a legitimate hit maker in Chicago. Right, right. And, you know, it's like if you're telling your band, it's like, hey, guess what? You're on the same label that Syl Johnson is on. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a that's really a exciting deal. thing. You know, even if you know, you're the Cal Dirons and your record gets pressed in a quantity of 200. And misspelled. And misspelled.
But at the same time, the singles uh, that you have compiled on this Twinite Lunar Rotation compilation, they're, they're pretty well done. I mean, there's some pretty elaborate orchestration going on here. It's not like they went in there and knocked that out in 40 minutes and said, okay, kid, you're done. They certainly understood what could possibly be a hit. Mm-hmm. We're not saying that. The approach was, was strictly to play the odds, strictly get en- enough records out there hitting the streets one of them's going to hit. <laughs> Something one of them's going to hit. And, yeah. and you know? something like the notations, I'm still here, was a eventually did. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's, so it's like, yeah, they had to put out, you know, 56 records, you know, to get that one. But by the time they got that one, it was, you know, they'd already moved on to some other things. Mm-hmm. So. What is the story with Ronaldo Domino, Rob? Ronaldo was widely recognized as being one of the most talented and unique voices in Chicago. He was given a shot by Mercury. They gave him three singles between their Smash and their Blue Rock imprints. He was managed by this fellow, William St. Johnson, who was a close friend growing up. And William St. Johnson was was good at talking, but it seems that he was also mismanaged quite a bit of his affairs. So Mm -hmm. the closest thing he had to a hit was I'm Hip to Your Game. Sold very, very well locally, but never made the tiniest bit of a bite on the national charts. And so Twinite kind of took him in, and if you listen to the, you know, just the pizzicato, the way that the strings are arranged on this, I mean, really everything about this record is, is extremely unique. And today it's, I think, incredibly compelling. We've, it's been sampled a number of times. But this was an actual artist that Twinite was taking a chance on. They actually put money behind him. Mm. There was, I think, one of the only three artists on the label that had more than three forty-fives. I mean, most of the artists on Twinite only had one forty-five. Mm-hmm. Right? So and you're saying that by Twinite standards, uh, Ken, he was a superstar. He's Absolutely. Prolific. <laughs> but nowhere prolific. else in the universe. Right. Let's give uh, let's give Ronaldo Domino his, uh, his due. Uh, this is not too cool to cry on Sound Opinions. Ronaldo Domino, Not Too Cool to Cry, from the eccentric soul Twinite's Lunar Rotation compilation on the Numero Group label. Uh, we are here with uh, Ken Shipley and Rob Severe, two of the founders of that label. Ronaldo Domino is certainly a distinctive voice. That falsetto is pretty haunting. And you could see how that may be a little strange for some people. It's like, wow, that's, yeah. that's a little bit off the charts, a little bit in terms mm, of its approach. Not it, for it nothing. Very, that much, guys... very much off the charts. Yeah, yeah. You're not kidding when you call it eccentric soul. Um, you guys have gone far afield to find music. Uh, we've talked about domestic soul records primarily here, but uh, one of the more fascinating compilations is Soul Messages from Demona, in which you uh, track down some fascinating music from Demona, Israel. They say the Savior's in the East known by the name of the Prince of Peace.
Recorded primarily between, what, 1975 and uh, 1981, Rob? Yeah, yeah, I think the last stuff that we included was probably about 1980. This was actually something that we've been wanting to do for a really long time because it's a combination of we know the story's incredible. We didn't know how incredible. It turned out to be much more incredible than we even thought. And two, I mean, the music is unique and fascinating, and it treads a kind of unique territory because of what they were doing and, and what their influences were. I mean, you know, some of these guys were involved in the birth of the Earth, Moon, and Fire. I mean, one of the guys was a member of the Pharaohs. You know, these guys were coming from strong soul roots, mm-hmm. but they they spent all this time in Africa, and then they spent all this time in Israel. I mean, that stuff shows mm-hmm. in this music, and it and it creates an incredibly interesting amalgam. Well, but just it, the name. I'd never even heard that name, and I'm instantly intrigued. Black Hebrew. Yeah. Well, Ken, how, how was this music used within that community? I mean, was it, it obviously had a heavy message value to it. Uh, were they sort of talking about the religion and, uh, and about how this would uh, be part of the community? I mean, was it sort of akin to Christian music, uh, the way we think of it in, in, in North America, or, you know, the Rastafarians in Jamaica, that kind of thing? Well, let me actually answer that, because I, I think mm-hmm. what's really interesting about this stuff is that they created this band to make money because they arrived in Israel and they were starving. It was very difficult through the naturalization process. It was very difficult to find jobs. They created this band to go on tour and make money for literally the entire community. Mm -hmm. But along the way, they started incorporating their own messages. Like they would take songs that were like popular American radio hits and just change the lyrics. Mm -hmm. There is a strong religious content, but as far as what the actual purpose of this band was, they toured constantly. They were doing giant weddings. They were doing giant, you know, banquets. Street you festivals. Know, street festivals. Army uh, bases. Yeah. Mil- <laughs> they were playing in military barracks. It was created to make money so the entire community could survive. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's pretty fascinating because you certainly hear about rappers with large entourages that they're supporting. This is like close to 1,000 people supported <laughs> Almost entirely by this one band. Really? Yes. By, by Hebrew soul music. Yeah. And yes. they were, but they with were an element huge. of psychedelia yeah. as well. Indeed. I mean, were, were these guys tripping? Was it just that they were in love with that sound of the psychedelic I, soul? I think or? it more has to do with the fact that they were raised on American music. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those elements would come through and then people would go back to the States and they'd bring music back with them. And it's just, you know, it's just like any kind of diasporic soul situation that we've encountered before. It's just, you know, that American influence will come through and somebody will come back with a Hendrix record and they'll mm-hmm. be like, huh. We should figure out a way to play guitar like this, and then they'll play it backwards, and it'll sound <laughs> even, you know. Well, the track we're going to play is an example of, of that eclecticism. It's, it's a multi-part song. They pack a lot in in a few minutes. So you mentioned Earth, Wind, and Fire earlier, uh, Rob, but there's also a percussion breakdown in the middle of it, and there's this psychedelic guitar solo uh, coming in. A lot of different elements going into this music, and really ambitious stuff. That, that, that's really impressive about it. This is one of their themed songs, actually. You know, they would do a lot of covers in their performances. They would do a lot of crowd-pleasers. Yeah. But this was the song that would set them up because you had a core band and then you had a bunch of different acts that would come in and so equilibrium was used as a bridge for a lot of these things so this actually became a pretty popular song in israel you know and and this record actually is is their best-selling record the record that this comes off of sweet land of mine equilibrium from the soul messengers on sound opinions 
Soul Messengers with a track called Equilibrium on Sound Opinions from the Soul Messages from Demona compilation on the Numero Group label. We've been talking with Ken Shipley and Rob Severe, who co-founded the label in 2003. Uh, guys, you mentioned earlier a boutique specialty model for the record industry. Do you think this is what we're going to move into in terms of labels that still sell CDs? I, I really do think that the future of this business is in small labels and in artists controlling their own destiny or having people who know how to you know, handle that destiny for them. And, and what Numero does is we, we handle people's legacies. Um, we go into somebody's house, and we'll take their master archive and all their photos with them, and we'll create something that can inform an entire public for generations to come. And, yeah, the future of, of all music is a lot more personal and probably a lot smaller, but I think you're going to have a better fan base because of it. All right. Well, Ken Shipley and Rob Severe of Numero Group, thanks for coming by Sound Opinions. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Coming up, Jim and I will review Lily Allen's second album and the new release from New Jersey's Titus Andronicus. Then it's Jim's turn to take a track to the desert island. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That's Lily Allen with the first single from her new album. The single is called The Fear, and the album is called It's Not Me, It's You. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love that title. Lily Allen, the poster child for uh, MySpace music, basically. Uh, We had her as a guest on the show soon after she exploded on the U.K. and then the U.S. music scenes first by floating her music on the net through her MySpace.com site. An unknown artist signed to a major label record deal. The label wasn't super interested in putting out her music really quickly. She got bored. She started putting some of her demo tracks up on MySpace. And lo and behold, people were downloading them by the millions. She ended up having a huge hit with that single that she floated on MySpace. The song called Smile was all over UK radio in the summer of 2006. She ended up with a U.S. record deal as well. Sold 2.5 million copies of that debut album, All Right Still. But it all started with that internet buzz about this artist. What was it about that sound that was so appealing? She was a working-class woman singing about everyday life, going out to the clubs, not finding the right guy, tongue-in-cheek kind of lyrics where she was exposing these guys for what they were, the bad pickup lines. The They're fact bad they, in bed, yeah. <laughs> they weren't worthy of her in a lot of ways. And at the same time, a very self-deprecating sense of humor. A real person, in other words, combined with these sunny Caribbean-flavored melodies, just seemed to be the antithesis of these pretentious, bloated rock bands that were coming out of the U.K. at the time. Now she's back with album number two, It's Not Me, It's You. We're going to review it in a minute, but let's hear a track from it first. Everyone's at it from Lily Allen on Sound Opinions. Everyone's at it by Lily Allen from her second album, It's Not Me, It's You, on Sound Opinions. 
Greg, I think a lot of people were hoping that Lily would fall on her face. In no time at all, somehow between 2006 and 2009, she went from complete and utter unknown to very overexposed, especially in the UK, where she hosts her own talk show, where she's getting gossip column coverage on the level of, like, Paris Hilton. Mm -hmm. And yet, when it came time to make an album, she concentrated on the music again. Pretty daring. Abandons that kind of 60s cafe pop pseudo world beat vibe of the first record and goes a lot more electronic a lot more straightforward pop meanwhile you know it's all about that attitude as she showed when she sat with us uh she is a supersized personality here she's uh daring to have a conversation with the creator asking god if he's ever taken crack and musing that his favorite band has got to be credence clearwater yeah. revival she's talking about how all the kids are on drugs today we uh we rate things on the sound opinions uh, buy it burn it trash it scale and I was a little skeptical that Lily could pull it off again. I got to say, though, this is a buy it record. Yes, Jim. Interesting transformation for Lily Allen. I don't think people knew that she had this record in her. Uh, what I like about it, uh, you know, she's a smart aleck, no doubt about it. People will gravitate towards the songs with the smart aleck attitude, the put downs of the boyfriend. But what I really love about this record is that there's also an undercurrent of emotional poignance here. There's a song about her dad in here that she manages not to turn into a drippy, sentimental kind of song. It's actually kind of sweet. And what I also hear in it is is sort of a a sadness, a tinge of sadness in her voice, a sense of, you know, what I really value most of all is just spending a night on the couch with my boyfriend eating takeout Chinese food. Right, it, it, right. It's a very simple song about domestic bliss. There's a more of an emotionally layered sense of a performer here. And frankly, I didn't think she had it in her, and I think she, she fooled me, and she made a terrific record to boot. The production's terrific. I mean, I think the sense of music hall and country, there's some tangos in here. Yeah. There's a, a lot of variety in this music, but really it's about that personality and the fact that she has more layers than maybe we gave her credit for. So I would say It's Not Me, It's You is a buy-it record as well. song called Titus Andronicus from a band called Titus Andronicus, taking their name from Shakespeare on Sound Opinions. The album uh, is called The Airing of Grievances. Talk about high and low art, Greg. The, mm-hmm. the name of the band comes from Shakespeare. The name of the album comes from a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> it is just widely released this week on the XL record label, but it's been out since uh, middle of spring last year. These guys originally from New Jersey put it out as an indie release, made this record, and uh, really started to generate a buzz on the indie underground rock scene with as we were saying earlier, music festivals being the new model, the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago last summer really turned a lot of heads. These guys were on at 11 o'clock in the morning, but their sound was massive, and their stage presence of the band leader, Patrick Stickles, was pure Iggy Pop over the top. You had to love him. <laughs> Combined with a little bit of, like, Sopranos, New Jersey wise guy. Yeah. This guy is an overeducated guy from the burbs of Jersey who at different times had as many as 11 people in his band. Could go from a trio to an 11-piece band. It has now settled in as a quintet. Let's play a track from this record, and then we'll get into our thoughts on the sound. As I said, uh, you know, these are obviously college-educated wise guys. Here's a typical song title. Upon viewing Grugel's Landscape with the Fall of Icarus by Titus Andronicus on Sound Opinions. (laughs) 
Upon viewing Bruegel's landscape with the fall of Icarus, wow, that is a mouthful <laughs> from Titus Andronicus and their new album, The Airing of Grievances on Sound Opinions. Jim, as you said, uh, this guy has some pretty high-minded ideas. There's a lot of songs in here that reference the Bible and literature and art and big concepts like childbirth, love, death, disease. And it's a perfect name for his band, Titus Andronicus, one of uh, Shakespeare's lesser works, let's say. Yeah, more, more uh, controversial. An orgy of rape and murder and cannibalism. <laughs> I mean, you know, five million people die in that play, bloody like, death. Like a rock concert. <laughs> exactly. So there's this merger of high art and low art in, in this band, this debasement that he's talking about in this particular play. These big ideas with this very rude three-chord music with a little bit of harmonica punctuating it, and these gang choruses. It sounds like a bunch of kids just broke loose from a juvenile detention center well, he to sing me, the harmonies on here. He you told know? me the story <laughs> about that. Stickles, at 23, had never sung before and just decided he was going to put this band together and sing. And uh, the producer, who was a friend of theirs, said, you know, you can't sing. You have to stop making this record for a couple of weeks <laughs> and go get some vocal training, which he did yeah. with a, a New Jersey opera singer, but it all failed. And then he decided at the end, the only way I can really sing is if I have all my friends around me. So they got a keg of beer each time it was time to do vocals, had all of his friends come in, and he would shout and yell, and they would scream in the background. So that is literally <laughs> what you're hearing. What's beautiful about it is there's an exuberance here that I think is really powerful, and there's also a self-deprecating humor. He had some tough years when he was in college, and you know a lot of it's coming out here, but it's not a, a pity party. It's exhilarating to listen yeah. to this record. It's exhilarating to see this band live. I mean, I saw a bunch of people converted when they played Pitchfork last summer. Mm -hmm. It was like, who are these guys? And afterwards, like, wow, that right. was amazing. This is a strong record. It's exactly what it needs to be. It's only nine songs long. But it's terrific for what it is. The airing of grievances is a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. I agree. It's a buy-it record, Greg. There is that wash of sound, a huge wall of noise coming at you, but lots of melody in there as well. It's just irresistible. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to go to the Desert Island, pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox, and play a record we cannot live without. And this week, it is Jim DeRigatis' turn. You know, Greg, last week when you did your Desert Island pick, uh, you paid homage to an, an anniversary, an important one in musical history, the death of Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, of course. Uh, I got another anniversary much more upbeat this year, okay? <laughs> Do you know it has been 20 years since the release of one of what I think is the greatest hip-hop albums of all time? Yes, indeed. The Beastie Boys. No, no, no. Well, that too. That too. Paul's Boutique. Yeah. Loked After Dark. Tone Loke's debut album oh, came out 20 Loke. years ago. Delicious <laughs> Vinyl is putting out a uh, a new issue of it with some remixes. You know, look, I, I love Tone Loke because I love the forgotten, <laughs> no talent, kind of ugly and, and ungainly dorks who wind up having huge hits for no discernible reason. 
I think that is no coincidence that the Trogs had a huge hit in the 60s with Wild Thing and Tone Loke had a huge hit in the early 90s with Wild Thing. Both of these guys were kind of out of shape, uh, no talent people who really couldn't sing or rap and who really didn't write their own stuff and, you know, were mainly singing about sex in some crude terms. I can't control myself, the Trogs said. I can't help myself, Tone Loke said, right? And yet uh, they, they become millionaires and then they disappear forever. <laughs> Loke has not been heard of. What is he doing? I actually interviewed him a couple of years ago. He said, I've been relaxing, man. That's all he's been. What have you done for the last 15 years, Tone Look? I've been relaxing, man. All right. That's great. Good for you. Anthony Terrell Smith grew up in Texas, moves to Los Angeles, finds himself tapped as the voice of this record that this fledgling label, uh, Delicious Vinyl, is going to put out. They got, they got all the ingredients in place, right? They got a Van Halen guitar lick. They got an idea for this grainy black and white video. It's going to rip off Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. They got a real rap talent who's actually writing the song, Young MC. All Tone Loke does is come in and do the vocal. But what a vocal it is. This guy is 100% personality, and every syllable on this track is pure Tone Loke. You know what I mean? How can you not be taken in by this guy? So I just got to say, Wild Thing by Tone Loke, one of the great pieces of art of the last, like, 100 years. No kidding on Sound Opinions. Working all week, not a five for my money. On the weekend comes, I go get live with the honey. Rolling down the street, I saw this girl when she was pumping. I wake my eyes, got into the ride, went to a club with jumping. Introduced myself as low, she said, you're a liar. I said, I got it going on, baby doll, and I'm a fire. Took her to the hotel, she said, you're the king. I said, be my queen, if you know what I mean, and let's do the wild thing. Wow. Some gear to buy. I saw this girl, she gonna rock my world, and I had to adjust my fly. She looked at me and smiled and said, You have plans for the night? I said, Hopefully, if things go well, I'll be with you tonight. So we journeyed to a house. One thing led to another. I came in the door, I go hit the floor, looked up, and it was a mother. I didn't know what to say. I was hanging by a string. She said, Hey, you too. I was once like you, and I like to do the wild thing. To do the wild thing. Wild thing. Please, baby, baby, please. Posse in effect. Hanging out is always hype. And with me and the crew leaving shins in. I'm with a girl who's just my type. Saw this luscious little frame. I ain't lying. Felt she was fine. This sweet young Miss Cole gave me a kiss and I knew that she was mine. Took her to the limousine. It's still parked outside. I tipped the show for when it was over and I gave her my own ride. Didn't get her off my jock, she was like static cling. But that's what happens when bodies start slapping from doing the wild thing. That's what happens when bodies start slapping and doing the wild thing. The inimitable tone look, wild thing on sound opinions. 
My Desert Island Jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to have to do a lot to top that, I know, but I think we've got one for you. Valentine's Day is coming up, and we are going to celebrate with some of the most unconventional love songs of all time. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions has been produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with our executive producer and fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, who actually prefers Funky Cole Medina to Wild Thing, <laughs> but we've been fighting about that. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. My name is Dustin. I'm from Washington State. And I always used to hate those people where they're listening to a show, and as soon as those people mention one band that that person likes that they don't like, they're like, oh, my God, I, I hate the show, I hate them, and blah, blah, blah. And I thought that was silly. Then you mentioned that you don't usually like They Might Be Giants, and I wanted to quit listening for the rest of the time. You can hear in the alley by the light switch Who watches over you Make a little birdhouse in your soul Not to put too fine a point on it Say I'm the only How could you not like They Might Be Dying? They are creative, they are, they are ironic, they are the longest, lasting, biggest indie band in the history of the world. So, uh, maybe you should broaden your horizons and get a little nerd rock going there. Uh, thank you very much. I do love your show, and I will continue listening. Goodbye. Hey guys, this is Josie from Brooklyn. I'm calling in response to the guy who said that he speaks for much of your audience when he says that he really doesn't care what you had to say about radio hits. One of the things I really love about your show is that you judge the music on its own merit. And whether or not it comes from someone with a reputation as a serious artist. I love hearing your opinions on Kanye West or Lil Wayne or even Miley Cyrus or the Jonas Brothers. I'm just glad there's someone out there doing intelligent analysis of current radio pop, and it makes me respect you guys more that you're not afraid to kill the metaphorical sacred cow and give a bad review to Bruce Springsteen or ACDC. Although I was kind of disturbed to realize that I liked the new Fall Out Boy album. That guy's such a douche. Anyway, love the show, and uh, thanks. I'm Hey, this is Jen from Brooklyn calling. I just listened to your review of the Springsteen album, and I can't believe you played that Outlaw Pete song, ripped it to shreds, and didn't even mention the fact that it's a complete ripoff of I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss. I mean, from the first time I heard that song, I could not get the Kiss song out of my head. And that makes it an annoying enough song.
Dean. He should be ashamed of himself. Anyway, I can't believe you guys didn't notice that. I'm, I'm sure other listeners did. I hope they did. Maybe it's just me. Great show. Thanks. Feel the Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Peter Collin from Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, I was listening to your last show, and I heard Jim say that he's a uh, fat guy with glasses, and I realized that I don't know what either of you two look like, uh, but I realized that subconsciously I've been picturing you guys as uh, Bert and Ernie, and that would be Greg is Bert, and then uh, Jim is Ernie, so let me know if that's what you actually look like. All right, bye. Oh, rubber ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.